This is the collection of atoms known as Jason Gotts, and you might be wondering what this show is all about. Think The Muppet Show with less comedy and no Muppets, but still the element of surprise. Each episode starts with a single word. I made this season in the middle of a pandemic, and like a lot of us in confinement, I felt hungry for connection with other people and with wild, open nature. So I asked nine friends for a single word each about the natural world. I thought about the word in an audio diary. I shared each word with a musician and asked them to write a song or two. I used each word to write a short story. And I talked to nine scientists, poets, songwriters, healers, and teachers about the word, about the natural world, and lots more. This is Clever Creature Season 2, dedicated always to my brave sister, Mary. The word of the day comes from Nicole Reed Kasky, and that word is rhythm. So the word of this episode is rhythm, and it comes to us from an old friend of mine, Nicole Reed Kasky. And as with all of these words, they kind of sit in the back of my consciousness and accrue associations for a couple of months before I sit down to write the stories or write the song or talk about them like this. And something that came out in the, in the short story is this, uh, it came out sort of metaphorically in the form of a religious life, the rhythm of a religious life. Um, is a suspicion that I have. I think I've talked about this before in different ways, but it's it's a longing that I have on the one hand and a suspicion of rhythm, of predictability um, that can take the form of family. It can take the form of community. It can take the form of having a schedule that you've set, that you follow. Like creatively speaking, say, okay, you know, Thursdays and Fridays are my days to write, which generally speaking is kind of accurate. Those are days when, I don't know, for whatever reason, maybe because much of the heavy lifting of the early part of the week is done, I have this sense of openness and I feel I feel f- more free, creatively more free, free to experiment, less pressured to get the thing done and more joy, more play. And so in the rhythm of my life, I've sometimes made those the writing days. But always when there is a rhythm, there is the danger of getting lulled into a kind of automaticity, like a trance, really. Like think about music. If you play, play a beat on a drum, get like a, a djembe, you know, or bongos or something, anyone can pick up a drum and play a simple rhythm. You know, if you play it long enough, you go into a kind of a trance. And there's a power in that and a beauty in that trance. It's a dreamlike state. You know, it, it takes you out of the ordinary. But it's also possible to be lulled into a kind of deadness by that. It's, it's funny. It's ironic, right? Because, you know, also in poetry, rhythm heightens reality. The, having a structure, having, you know, a meter... Uh, and sometimes rhyme, it heightens reality. In Shakespeare, he goes into verse often when there's something big and transcendent that needs to be said. And so it 
it sets that kind of ritual ground. Rhythm sets that ritual, ritual ground for something extraordinary, transcendent, metaphysical to happen, right? And it does that, ironically, by being predictable and earthy um, and grounded. By giving you that grounded structure, it makes the extraordinary possible. But trance is a double-edged sword because it can also put you to sleep. You know, you have to be careful in a way not to disappear into the trance, not to lose yourself. And so this is the, this is the tension of rhythm. Um, I suppose that there are people who have worked this out <laughs> long ago. I don't know. People who are much more disciplined than I am, um, much more comfortable with the rhythms that they've created in their lives. But I find that I sometimes chafe within the bars of the rhythm, um, and I sometimes resist or reject them, react against them, uh, feel some need to disrupt the rhythm in order to wake myself up again. But that said, the rhythm is essential. It changes, it shifts. Sometimes more than one rhythm comes together to form a polyrhythm, but in one form or another, Rhythm is a defining feature of, of my life, of everyone's life. I mean, your heart is beating always. And so, you know, run from it as you might, you, you'll still come back to it. It's just that question of how do you tap into the ability of rhythm to wake you up and keep you alive as opposed to putting you to sleep? One of the best decisions I made this season was to collaborate with friends and with my son Emre on the music. This is the second song that we've written together. He made the main guitar part and he plays it. Um, I play some lead guitar and some bass and so does he. I wrote lyrics and I sing the vocals and it was produced by my friend Adi Sadak in Istanbul, Turkey. stirring well if a twig should snap or at the slightest breath or if I reach down for my leave me alone I know what you're gonna say and I know it's the truth but I am sick of the truth and I don't care anyway oh totally totally yeah It's perfectly okay to feel this way But tomorrow will be different Respectfully I disagree What if tomorrow is effectively The same as every other day Well I'd hate to disappoint you Love is coming Love is coming for you 
Whether or not you will see it or accept it or embrace it or ignore it or despair or try to bargain or insist that it is too anachronistic to survive amid the tensions of the time or try to argue the indifference of the universe to particles or some such nonsense. I know you feel that rhythm, well that rhythm is love. This story is called Rhythm, or The King of Siam. Let him stay as long as he wants, said Khanna. What's the big deal? Ben kept pacing around the dining room table, his fingers laced behind his back, his shoulders stooped, looking somehow even bigger and more bear-like for the weight on his shoulders. The big deal, he said, isn't just that David is lost, still, after, what, 10 years of therapy and graduate school in paleo-botanical spiritualism or whatever the hell it was? After a string of remarkably stable and sane girlfriends, any one of whom he would have been lucky to have as a wife, and every one of whose seemingly limitless reserves of patience he managed to exhaust within, at most, six months? That would just be sad worthy of our empathy and pity. The problem is that David is like the missing Newtonian force, the active force of chaos and disorder. Wherever he goes, he leaves disarray in his wake. I don't want him here, Hannah. I don't want him around Moisha and Hillel, not for five minutes and certainly not for as long as he wants. Sit down, said Hannah, seating herself across from him at the walnut dining table, a wedding present from her parents. Listen, David's your brother. He's coming here because he needs you. Why else? We've been blessed. This house, our beautiful kids, your job at the university. If David needs order, we've got order to spare. If it's peace and quiet he needs, we've got that too. What's an older brother for if not for refuge? Ben rested his huge, furrowed forehead on his palms, rocked his head back and forth. That's how he gets you, Hana. You don't understand. That's how he gets you every time. It was three months since David had graduated with his second master's degree, a self-directed, interdisciplinary major mostly under the umbrella of comparative literature and anthropology, and mostly about indigenous Amazonian spiritual iconography. He was living in Olympia, Washington, and feeling generally depressed and unmotivated, which he suspected was because of all the rain. This was paradoxical, somehow because he had chosen Washington State in the first place out of a sense that the rich ecology of the old-growth forests would be renewing for him, and that ecology depended on rain. Before moving there from Nevada, he had imagined himself some kind of scholar-druid, reading and writing in a moss-covered tent to be closer to the earth energy, but the fact was that he hated rain. Hated being in it, hated hearing it, hated the humidity and the mossy stink of the air afterwards. After a couple hopeful hikes upon arrival, he had never once entered the old-growth forests again, hiding out instead in his monk's cell of a dorm room, reading, sleeping, and smoking weed. He couldn't remember whose idea it had been initially, Mom's maybe, that he go over to Jerusalem to visit Ben. Mom had generously offered to spring for the poor scholar's plane tickets, and since David was festering in Olympia where there were limited opportunities for experts in indigenous Amazonian spiritual iconography, not that he had looked for any, he thought, what the hell, change of scenery, a journey back in time to the family's ancient roots. David? David Scheinbeck? It's me, your brother, Ben. 
Almost a decade had passed since the two brothers had seen one another, what with Ben's finding religion and making Aliyah to the Jewish homeland and David's being in Nevada, then Washington for grad school, with a couple of years of odd jobs in between. Aside from the dark, anxious eyes and the bird-like frame, the David emerging from the gate at Ben-Gurion Airport outside of Tel Aviv looked nothing like the David Ben remembered tying to the posts in the basement when they played their weird, invented boyhood game of kidnap. Nothing, even, like the David who Ben once drove with after college to a fish concert in Indiana, the two of them bonding over a shared encyclopedic knowledge of the band's bootlegs, arguing like Talmudic scholars over which jam was the most transcendent and hypnotic of all time, and why. This David, no longer young, with his stringy, thinning hair, his hollowed cheeks, and his sketchy bramble of a beard, would not have been out of place among the raving, homeless biblical prophets that flocked from all over the world to the sidewalks of Jerusalem. Ben, look at you, with the tzitzit and everything. David gave the blue-tipped white tassels of Ben's religious undergarment a friendly tug. Ben slapped his hand away, a little harder than he'd meant to. Ow, said David, lay not the flat of thy hand on thy brother. Tug not thy brother's tzitzit, said Ben, and we'll get along just fine. Jeez, said David, was your sense of humor in your foreskin? Their parents, both Jewish but non-religious, hadn't had them circumcised as babies. Ben had had the operation as an adult, part of his religious awakening after moving to Israel. Can we not talk about my foreskin, asked Ben. How was the flight? Well, aside from the Mossad guys with Uzis interrogating me at both ends, not too bad. There was matzah ball soup on the plane. These Jewish tough guys are new to me. I'm scared of them. You get used to them, said Ben. They're everywhere. Come on. Let's get your luggage and hit the road. I will share with you the wonders of Israeli traffic. Ben and Chana's home was a beautiful stone villa owned by the university, a perk of the history chair Ben occupied. On the outside, walls made in tasteful classical style of the local rough-hewn off-white stone builders had been using for millennia. On the inside, gleaming stainless steel appliances, polished burlwood countertops, and cozy sitting nooks with colorful throw pillows straight out of better homes and gardens, or the Israeli equivalent. To this, Ben and Chana had added a substantial amount of tasteful Judaica, an expensive-looking antique silver menorah, nicely framed prints of ancient Hebrew texts and Chagall paintings, and of course, bookshelves full to bursting with Jewish literature, philosophy, history, and religion. As he always did in any house, David went straight for the books. You've read this, he said, flipping through an oversized volume of Talmud. Put that back, snapped Ben. It's very valuable. Oh, so it's not for reading. It's just for displaying on the shelf. Very impressive. Were you about to read it? Asked Ben, in that supercilious Socratic tone that always made David's skin crawl. Yeah, yeah, touche, said David. But you're evading my question. Actually, said Chana, teasingly, I've never once seen him open them. I do open them, said Ben, a little wounded. All the time. He wouldn't have seen it. It's a private thing for me, Talmud study. Some men have a secret dungeon, said David. You sneak downstairs to quibble with Rabbi Akiva. Chana giggled, and Ben scowled and stalked out of the room. Chana had grown up religious and wore it all more lightly than David did, with his zeal of the converted. For her, Judaism was an organizing principle. The days of the calendar tied to sweet obligations, like preparing Shabbat dinner or getting the house cleaned out for Pesach. Everything from grocery shopping to getting dressed each day was a gentle reminder, a moment to reflect with joy and gratitude on their happy home life, on how blessed they were. But her life wasn't all pious and duty-bound. She had so many friends in the community. 
Liesel with her wicked sense of humor, and Rachel, who somehow turned complaining about her husband and her kids into high art, Jewishness was a kind of musical score that held their lives within a predictable rhythm. But it also left plenty of space for improvisation. You could be yourself within it. With all his scholarship, when it came to everyday religious life, Ben was like a kid practicing for his first piano recital, too hung up on the fingering to let the music swing. The first Shabbat dinner with David had gone okay, in spite of Ben's nerves. In spite of his reopening for four nights straight in the privacy of his and Hannah's bedroom, arguments in the case of whether to temporarily suspend their weekly custom of sharing the meal with friends so as not to be embarrassed by his little brother. But David had been quiet the whole time, shy even, his eyes downcast and his answers evasive whenever Liesel's husband Egon tried to make conversation. Inside he was feeling antsy, out of place, like he was in one of those dreams of a high school play where you can't remember any of your lines. He tried his best to follow along and fit in, taking his cues from the kids for the singing and the prayers, and sometimes that helped. After all, he was a kid himself in this place, thrust into a world of strange signs and symbols that everyone around him seemed to take for granted. But then, trying to be friendly, Aegon would ask him something about the Amazon, and suddenly he'd feel foolish and unserious, a ridiculous child man among adults who'd made up their minds about who they were and what they wanted to be. They'd had children themselves, for Christ's sake. That took some chutzpah, some sense of where you wanted to see yourself in five years. From the moment he arrived, Hannah had treated David like a beloved stray cat, the kind that came and went as it pleased and showed its love in mysterious ways, like leaving a dead pigeon on your pillow. Some silent understanding had passed between them on the doorstep, and it was she, not Ben, who gave David the sanctuary he'd come there in search of. Throughout the meal, she kept clandestinely refilling his cup with the halfway decent kosher wine everyone else was drinking in moderation, hoping it might help put him at ease. Half the time, when David was anxious, alcohol transformed him into an entirely different person, someone suave and lyrical, in spite of being visibly drunk, someone like Richard Burton or Dean Martin. The other half of the time, it made him ten times more irritable and depressed. Tonight was that other half. After the guests left and the kids went to bed, David and Ben stayed at the table, and that's when the interrogation began. Okay, said David, let me get this straight. God does not want you to tear the toilet paper on Shabbat, but if you tear it the day before and stack it on top of the toilet, God's okay with that? Ben was feeling relaxed and magnanimous tonight, happy to initiate his little brother in the ways of Jewry as he'd done with bike riding and cigarettes and girls back when they were little heathen kids running around the streets of Santa Barbara. The first thing to understand, David, is this. Hashem, our God, isn't like Jesus. He's not a cuddly little personal plush toy you can carry around in your heart. Hashem is unknowable, awe-inspiring, the mystery of mysteries. He's manifest in the words of Torah, but you can't relate to him like a person. It doesn't make sense to talk about Hashem's motivations or thought processes. We follow the laws. We argue about how to apply them in the changing world and when there might be exceptions. On things like the toilet paper, we defer to religious authority, the leaders of our communities. They say it's okay, it's okay. We don't have to worry about it. One less thing to worry about, right? But the bigger picture, that's what you're missing. You live like this, day in, day out, year in, year out, and life makes sense in a way it never did in Santa Barbara. Every year a different fashion, first it's fondue, then it's ski trips, then it's, who knows, swinging sex parties? It's hell, is what it is. And like the lobsters in the pot, Nobody notices until it's too late. 
About one sentence into this speech, David had tuned out completely. His jaw was tight. He was drumming with his fingers on the table. So you believe in God? I mean, how does that even happen? You grow up atheist in California, and then suddenly one day you believe that Hashem parted the waters and put Adam in charge of all the animals, and women are unclean during their periods? I don't see it that way, said Ben. What other way is there to see it? Do you believe in Hashem or not? I find peace in submitting to the mystery, to the unknowable. Okay, fine. Pathetic, craven, but fine. Let's accept that you're a submissive. But how can you submit to this in particular? To me, all this? It's like you're an actor who went crazy and now performs Macbeth or, no, something cozier. The king and I, maybe. Night after night for his whole life, believing he's the king of Siam. I don't understand it, Ben. Hana, I get. She grew up in it. Don't you ever feel like a charlatan? Tonight, David would not get under Ben's skin. Tonight, Ben had the patience of Job. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes I feel like a charlatan. And that's where faith comes in. I look at my beautiful wife my beautiful family, my books, my students, and I remember that all of this flourishes. All of it has its roots in the soil of Jewish life. When I feel lost or foolish, I lean on humility. I remember that I'm just one thread in a rich tapestry of 5,000 years of tradition. Is it a tapestry or is it a garden? You're mixing your metaphors. You're splitting hairs. You're living in a fairy tale. Aren't you supposed to be some kind of anthropologist? How can you be so obtuse about human nature? Fuck off. I think I will. I will fuck off to bed. And so should you. What's your plan for tomorrow? Wandering around Jerusalem judging people? Throughout all this, Hannah had been doing the dishes, eavesdropping from the kitchen. It was supposed to be a bad habit, she knew, but it was one she'd had all her life, and more than once good had come from it. When Ben left, she came out to clear the silver-tiered tray of dates, another wedding present that came out after dinner every week, often with the dates from the week before, since nobody liked dates. He loves you, you know, she said to David, who was face down in his crossed forearms, cooling his wine-flushed forehead. He's always talking about you. Under her kind, unobtrusive attention, David softened a bit. Couldn't bring himself to say what he was thinking, to ask her how a smart woman like her could accept a life of domestic drudgery, as if Betty Friedan had never existed. Didn't she have any ambitions? Any dreams of her own? He shifted uncomfortably, realizing he had the erection he got almost any time a woman was kind to him, hating himself for it. Thanks, he muttered, and fucked off to bed. For the first few weeks, David was gone most days, wandering around Jerusalem, sometimes judging people, and sometimes just sightseeing. He traveled outside of the city, too, solitary day trips to the Dead Sea and the Ramon crater in the Negev desert. He spent time in the Arab quarter of the old city, drinking endless cups of tea as the shopkeepers offered him bargains on carpets or jewelry he would never buy. But in the evenings and on the weekends, David was almost able to suspend disbelief, lulled by the rhythm of the life of the family. He almost became one of them. The boys loved him. Moisha was eleven and Hillel was nine, and both of them were talented at drawing. David, a closet cartoonist, taught them how to tell a story panel by panel, and together they made a little graphic novel called The Mossad Agent Who Was Not Afraid to Cry, all about a Mossad agent who somehow balanced toughness with sensitivity, all while defeating a Russian plot to blow up the Knesset. What is he, on permanent vacation? Ben kvetched. He has no job, no plans as far as I can tell. He's been here for two months already and I see no end in sight. Whenever Ben complained like this, which was often, 
Hannah tried to defuse the situation. She'd been the only child of two miserably unhappy, constantly bickering parents, and had somehow emerged unscathed except for this instinct to placate everyone, which wasn't the worst thing, after all. Let him be, Ben. It's good for him here. He's not bothering anyone, and he's so good with the boys. Hasn't it been nice, the date nights? Not having to scramble for a babysitter? But Ben wasn't placated. He's my little brother. I feel responsible for him, and I feel like we're enabling him. Enabling him to what? Be comfortable for once in his life? Enabling him to do what he's been doing for years. Avoid making a life for himself. He's borrowing my life. He's your brother, Ben. He's family. You don't have a life that isn't also his. But David was building something, actually. One day, on his wanderings, he'd seen a sign on a lamppost. Calling all lost intellectuals, it said, in search of substance. Live the life of the mind and the heart with like-minded misfits in an independent, self-sustaining community. Yes, it might be a freakish commune, a cult, but something about the wording appealed to him. So he took a bus to the outskirts of the city, this ancient city with its infectious spirit of spiritual rootedness and constant renewal, this city where penitents dragging massive crosses through billowing clouds of frankincense smoke rubbed elbows with half-naked tourists on their way to the nearest McDonald's, and he sat there on a hilltop in a circle of self-selected lost intellectuals, listening as an animated young chassid explained that joy is the true human condition, that unhappiness is the clearest indicator that you're not living the life you're entitled to. He talked about the divine spark in all of us, lonely and isolated in this modern world. There was good food, followed by rousing punk klezmer music and a surprising amount of vodka. This was not your great-grandpa's Judaism, to be sure. It was a far cry even from Ben's version, cozy but unbearably smug. There was something false, something irritatingly saccharine about life with Ben. But this? This was real. This was a Judaism David could understand. A spikier rhythm, to be sure, but a rhythm closer to that of his own, more excitable heart. He danced ecstatically, with his eyes half-closed, and when he opened them he saw that he wasn't alone. A tiny woman, with a huge mane of dreadlocks, was watching him with a wry, intelligent smile. A smile that said, come on, let's talk. I bet we have a lot in common. Which they did, as it turned out. Quite a lot indeed. I don't know, said Ben to Aegon. It's just sad, really. This was their first Shabbat together in six years since Egon had taken a teaching job in London. He and Liesel were back in Jerusalem, visiting for the summer. The Lubavitchers got him, Ben continued. I couldn't believe it, with all his talk about my life being a hoax. He's married with four kids already, living in Ramat Shlomo. He's a crazy zealot, half-settler, raving about the end of days and the divine right to the Holy Land. I thought they didn't believe in Israel, said Egon. Some do, some don't, said Ben. Who knows what they believe? I can't listen to him for more than five minutes. So you don't see him? Like I said, five minutes. A phone call now once or twice a year. It's a different world, Egon. They might as well be living on the moon. What if he's happy, said Chana, clearing the soup bowls. I mean, plenty of your old friends think you're crazy living the way we do. This was an old argument, and Ben had had enough of it. It's different, Chana. You know it's different. They want to take over the world. Egon thought that was a little paranoid, anti-Semitic even, reminiscent of the protocols of the elders of Zion. This led to the only fight the two friends had ever had, a fight that got so nasty that when Liesel and Egon went back to the UK, the two couples drifted out of touch. It was easier that way, natural, less disruptive to the rhythms of everyday life.
Before I introduce the guest, just a quick note to say that all of these conversations were recorded in the fall and winter of 2020, either just before or just after the US presidential election and several months into the pandemic, in case any of those themes come up. America and other parts of the Western world are in the midst of what some people are calling a psychedelic renaissance. After half a century of prohibition, there's once again serious and widespread scientific research into the medicinal benefits of psilocybin, DMT, LSD, and other psychedelics. Early data from Johns Hopkins and other major research centers show great promise for the treatment of anxiety, depression, trauma, and even perhaps for the epidemic of personal and spiritual isolation that plagues modern Western society. At the same time, decriminalized nature movements across the United States are liberalizing laws for the possession and use of marijuana, mescaline-containing cactuses, ayahuasca, magic mushrooms, and more. For better and for worse, their successes will give rise to whole new industries. Humanity's relationship with psychedelics is nothing new. In some parts of the world, the ceremonial use of psychedelic plants and fungi likely goes back thousands of years. But as we introduce them to mainstream American society, serious questions come up. How can we use them most wisely and beneficially? How can we protect increasingly popular species from depletion and extinction? How should industry, science, and individuals engage with indigenous cultures that have cultivated and used them for centuries? And how do we ensure that this so-called renaissance benefits queer, black, and other communities that previous revolutions have left out? My guest today is Bia Labachi. She is a Brazilian anthropologist living in the U.S. She's also the founder of Chacruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines. Chacruna is a nonprofit organization building a bridge between psychedelic science and the ceremonial use of plant medicines. It organizes events, does legal advocacy, and produces a wealth of educational materials on subjects that aren't being addressed anywhere else in the space. It's raising the essential questions that might otherwise be ignored in our zeal to profit, personally, materially, or otherwise, from these gifts of nature. Uh, hi, Bia. Welcome to Clever Creature. Hi, Jason. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. So I guess I want to start by what got you into this work? What brought you into into this very mission-driven work? Well, it's it's been since the beginning a personal interest, my personal relation to psychedelics, but it also has been since the very beginning an intellectual curiosity. And uh, psychedelics have fulfilled this this double role in my in my life. It's food for the soul, but it's also food for thought, and also always have instigated really important questions. To be honest, I don't see much of a difference in those two venues because the the spiritual and the more emotional, psychological, personal is very political as well, and. I've always, when I've taken psychedelics, I've gotten super deeply philosophical thinking about life and existence and everything else and what are we doing here and how do we think the world and how do we classify and narrate things to ourselves. And so I've always had an interest since I was a child in different cultures and uh, things that, that were unconventional or unfamiliar. I've always been attracted to alterity, and that's what led me to become an anthropologist, and uh, psychedelics has been a very natural mix into all of my previous interests and sparkled much more 
And I'm really grateful for the opportunity of doing this work. That's interesting what you said about there being no disconnection between the psychological, the spiritual, and the political. And I think in like mainstream psychedelic use in, is there a better, less clumsy term that you guys use than the West? You know, the West seems inaccurate. We're the North to indigenous peoples south of here. Well, there are endless discussions about that. Sociologists might kill and die over terms and concepts, but, you know, some people, we use a little bit global North and global South, which is not just geographic, but talks about minorities and includes different areas of the globe. And then other people will use other terminologies and, you know, it doesn't matter, but I know what you're talking about. Maybe I'll stick with America since that's what I know and that's the culture I come from. So in American, what I would think of as mainstream psychedelic American use, there's a tendency to divorce the spiritual from the political the spiritual and the psychological, the personal use from the political. And I think that's just American culture in general, you know, this idea of personal health journey. But I, I completely agree with you and what you're saying. First of all, I think the substances naturally should take us to all of those dimensions. They certainly take me to all of those dimensions. And it's vitally important that they not be disconnected, especially as these things go more mainstream. I don't think this is just about the U.S. or the psychedelic field. It's A lot has to do with a more biomedical approach where you're trying to create a scientific understanding around certain things. And then you, you, you think you have to isolate the variables and keep objectivity or neutrality or distance and consider that the more personal, there is not a space for that. So it... It has a lot to do with disciplines and how uh, we organize knowledge, whereby this kind of approach is uh, the scientific, the health sciences, the biomedical is considered to have a kind of superior status. And the social sciences is that like little poor cousin that doesn't get invited to all the <laughs> important meetings, but it's kind of, you know, somewhere there, uh, but it has less prestige. And in Chikruna, we are all about empowering social sciences and anthropology. Everybody's kind of an anthropologist. Everybody has a theory of things and creates reflections. You know, when you go to a bar and have a beer with your friends, you're trying to speculate and understand reality. And we just do that more professionally and more rigorously and with more methods. But contextualizing, understanding history, the social and cultural aspects, we are very much focused on those aspects and also everything has a cultural context. So it's it's a bit funny when scientists want to talk about psychedelics and they talk about the medical context, the cultural context. It's a weird classification for an anthropologist uh, because the medical context is also a cultural one. There is no context that is not, not cultural. Culture is in everything. And so right. we are, uh, what happens in the field of drugs in general, just not just psychedelics, but drugs is that social sciences usually get very little prestige and it's kind of like the cherry on top of the cake. And although right. everybody talks about set and setting and the importance of context and depending where, how, with who, in the end, that has less importance and less attention because the whole effort is concentrating on understanding the effect, the biomedical properties, uh, you know, the alleged dangers or benefits of certain compounds 
isolated from their cultural context. Uh, so Chikruna is trying to reinsert uh, social sciences in the field of psychedelic science, bring critical thinking, bring critical reflection into the field of mainstream psychedelic science. Was Chakruna originally funded by MAPS? Or are you just partners in some way? And Ma I should say for the listeners that MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Science. Studies. Studies. MAPS has been a, a funded or supporter as a sponsor of a few of our conferences, but alongside okay. many other organizations that were our sponsors in our conferences. However, I consider Chakruna and MAPS like sister organizations. Uh, we have different missions, but I, I consider in general aligned. MAPS is, of course, focuses on uh, treating PTSD with MDMA, and it's more biomedical and has a more scientific uh, tone to all of it. Uh, but MAPS among this kind of institution is the more progressist because MAPS openly uh, supports anti-prohibitionism, what other biomedical organizations are not mm -hmm. willing to do so clearly. I consider that MAPS still has a long ways to go on other issues, more social, but there's a lot of uh, people working on those fronts and good news coming along. And that's interesting. I mean, as you say, they are, they're among the more progressive of these organizations, but they are, you know, they're important in this emerging psychedelic science and studies in the West. And so for you all to be sort of sister organizations, that's a seat at the table to which the social scientists are normally not, not invited. Well, it depends. There's like an organization of biomedical researchers that, uh, you know, is entirely focused on biomedical research. And you have to have a certain N of people that you did uh, quantitative work studying and even certain biomedical researchers would not be able to fulfill those requirements and can't join that association. Okay. Uh, so there is a spectrum of different political views. There's a lot of scientists that don't want to get involved in politics and they say, I do science, I don't do politics. You know, I'm just a pharmacologist. This is just science. But we think all science is political and has a context so in Chikruna, we're dedicated to creating public education around psychedelic plant medicines. And right. we want to create a bridge between the universe of shamanism, ritual, religion, traditional uses, uh, ceremony, sacred plants, and the emergent field of psychedelic science with the psychedelic assisted therapies. And the other objective of Chikruna is to create inclusion, equity, diversity, access in the fields. And we are all about platforming voices that normally get excluded from the mainstream of psychedelic science. So we like to say that our stars are, are people of color, our indigenous people, our women, our queer people, our people from the global south. And we got an accent in Chikruna, and we're trying to bring this accent to the U.S. and populate with our immigrant and foreign knowledge and influence. And I must say that I am pretty satisfied with the results. I think there's a real hunger in America today for other kinds of voices. People are really tired of the same monolithical, wide, straight, male, cis, hetero, biomedical approach. So it doesn't mean that 
people that are in this category can't bring legitimate knowledge and they do and we are friends with a lot of them and some of them are part of our team but there is a need to to diversify to include other voices to uh, to give platform to people that have other things to say and diversity really increases creativity uh, and offers new possibilities and other ways of seeing the world uh, that are enriching and powerful. I've read Ayahuasca, Shamanism in the Amazon and Beyond. Is that the correct title? Yeah, that's, that's perhaps one of my favorite books ever. It's by Oxford University Press. I'm co-editor with Clancy Kavner. It's from 2014. I, I love that book. And I think I want to talk a little bit about Ayahuasca as a case study for some of the tensions and the fault lines that you're trying to bridge as these multiple worlds come together, but especially the two worlds of, let's say, the global north and indigenous ceremonial use of plants. You know, ayahuasca tourism is an increasing phenomenon. I've never been to Peru. Um, when I've done ayahuasca, it's been here in New York, far removed from anything close to an indigenous context. But as these worlds come together, what are some of the benefits? What are some of the harms? Yeah, it's a very long question. And in many regards, it's kind of the most uh, dense part of my career that I published my master's and my PhD were about ayahuasca. And we published several books about ayahuasca through the years. I don't really know even how to start. But in one line, uh, the genie is out of the bottle. There is a great interest. It's really popular. It's increasing by the day. And it's hard to contain. So we, ha we, we sort of have a harm reduction approach to the problems mm. of the globalization of ayahuasca. And we try to uh, create bridges and parameters through which this globalization goes more smoothly. So one of the things we have done is a, a resource called Raising Awareness About Sexual Abuse in Ayahuasca Circles. And right. that's a result of a collaborative effort on different fronts with different players talking about cross-cultural challenges and frequent trends and potential difficulties that women might face, not just women, but mainly women. Uh, that's one whole series of efforts. And we have another resource that is a legal companion to that, helping victims or survivors of abuse to know their legal rights and which nonprofits or organizations to contact for help. And then we have another series of efforts uh, called legal harm reduction. So we try to teach people what are their rights and their obligations and how can they uh, have best practices to be as legal as possible, to be as uh, according to, to the official parameters as, as they can get, considering that it's DMT is considered uh, illegal on a federal level. Although, you know, the INCB has explicitly said that ayahuasca is not considered a preparation of DMT. It shouldn't be huh. forbidden, but it, it is on a national level considered, except for certain religious uses. And so we have a, a line of efforts there. We have an, another line of efforts that are trying to help ayahuasca circles and communities to do best practices and organize themselves and keep track of the sacrament, having health and, and safety measures, have ethical standards, follow certain preparation and integration 
rules and organize themselves, produce best practices. That's another series of resources that we have. And we have also published this document about the commodification of ayahuasca, how can we do better, which tries to raise awareness around about this inequality and this hierarchical and power relations in ayahuasca tourism. So asking folks to be aware about where they go drink ayahuasca and how are shamans treated and avoid tokenization and recognized like when you are navigating on a site, you know, how do they represent indigenous people? Is the shaman named by name? Is the culture identified? And are these people paid fairly? Are these ayahuasca retreats or groups or centers uh, or collectives giving back to the community? Where does the ayahuasca come from? Do they have any local educational project? And then we have our Chikruna Chronicles, which is our publication. So we are also a kind of mix, hybrid between, uh, let's say, media and journalism and academia. Basically, we're trying to have experts, uh, I, a lot of them anthropologists, uh, write in more accessible ways so people could understand. So the quality of our writings in general, it's rather different and, you know, not to brag, but kind of much more dense and sophisticated than what is out there, but still accessible and try to talk about all of these different aspects and the impacts on sourcing and the new age interest, this entrepreneurial system that is raising and uh, the new markets that are arising around the substances, but also the more uh, timely question on how can these new psychedelic businesses give back to indigenous people. It's hard for me to talk just a little about ayahuasca. When I first encountered ayahuasca, I think of myself as someone who is not generally exoticizing indigenous peoples or trying to take advantage of their knowledge or, or co-opt it or anything. But, you know, we all come from the culture we come from and, you know, we have blind spots. My initial encounters with ayahuasca were in very non traditional context, but still I arrived at this understanding just because of the effects of it, right? And because of the beauty of the Icaros and the, the kind of communal setting, this sense that I think a lot of people come to up here, which is like, okay, the Western world, you know, we're all very disconnected. We're all, we break everything into little boxes. People are isolated from one another. There's like a loneliness epidemic, blah, blah, blah. And there is a natural world out there somewhere, right? Which we've lost connection to. And this plant and this tradition or traditions is some connection back to that. But then when I read the anthropology in in the book we were talking about, right? I see that, for example, there are a number of people problematizing the idea that ayahuasca, that the preparation of ayahuasca and the chacruna leaf is, you know, thousands of years old, that probably, in fact, it's like a couple centuries or something, and that ceremonially, traditionally, ayahuasca was used in a very different way from how we think of it, so then it just problematizes that whole narrative. I mean, I wonder, I wonder how you think about that as somebody who yourself obviously has had a personal connection with ayahuasca and, has, and, and does, I guess, believe in its healing power, how you kind of relate to the fact that it seems 
like a co-creation in some ways of of modern and indigenous cultures this this the way at least the way it's used now i'm not sure i understand fully your question i'm trying to say that there is like a story that i think is common to a lot of people who use ayahuasca, a lot of people in America and maybe also in cities in in Brazil, I don't know, a sense of the plant and the traditions that are behind it as some kind of connection to an older, more earth-connected way of living that is lost in the modern world. But when I read the anthropology that you've written, you know, you and the people in the book that I was talking about before, I get a very different lens on it. Like the new age has sort of invented the idea of kind of spiritual and psychological. That had nothing to do with the ceremonial use of ayahuasca. It was in fact, in many cases, for hunting or simply for fighting diseases or simply or going after a demon or something. You you tackled the essence of that book. Uh, you know, the discourse of anthropologists is very different than the discourse of the common sense. And there is a common sense narrative about ayahuasca and that, you know, this has been used for thousands and thousands of years, and this is for uh, improving the health of the individual. And we kind of project a lot of our own categories and understanding and anxieties and ways of seeing and thinking into indigenous people. And they are kind of like this blank, you know, invisible wall that we're just projecting onto them, our own feelings, our own desires, our own uh, fantasies. And what anthropologists do is try to to address how uh, those practices, what they mean for the people that are involved under their lenses and on their perspective. And when you look at that, and there's a rich tradition of over 100 years of study uh, of shamanism, it's one of the pillars of anthropology, you see a much more complicated and nuanced scenario uh, where there is a lot of immigration between city and forest, it's not a straight line from the very pristine, uh, unique, original shaman to to then the mestizo and then to the Christian and the urban. There has been always a lot of flux between city and forest and back from the city to the forest and from the forest to the city. A lot of things that are imported. Sometimes you look at traditional practices, but actually they were born in riverine towns, mestizo towns, uh, uh, that were a product of contact and colonization and then imported back uh, to indigenous people. So there's a lot of talk about that. And also ayahuasca doesn't fit uh, perfectly our dreams of a wellness center, the spa of beauty of the skin and the soul, uh, but it's <laughs> related maybe to other things like uh, witchcraft, territorial disputes, war, hunting, predatory relations. Shamanism is a world of right. predation. It's a constant tension between the world of the spirits and the world of men and game and hunting and all of that plays a role. And we would like to try to convey some of these complex ideas to a wider population because that's one of the main problems is that academia remains quite uh, unaccessible, hermetic, or even expensive, hard to reach. This particularly is the cheapest one, but if you go to more mainstream publishers, a book will cost maybe $150, $200, or 
or you can only read in the certain packages that are sold to those big libraries. So there's right. this whole commercial uh, network of exchange of academic knowledge that is very unfriendly. And Shikrina is trying to break that, trying to uh, bring some of this knowledge in ways that are more accessible. And it's hard because for academics, it doesn't count so much to publish in a site that doesn't have peer review. But sure. then again, sure. they can have a real influence and be read by thousands and thousands of people. And you can see impact. So Chikrina is an effort by academics, by intellectuals, by PhDs to get out of academia. You know, when you look at what's happening in the global north, in America, with psychedelics, what are your feelings in terms of like the possible benefits or effects that this might have on the culture? Like, are you neutral? Is it somewhat cynical, somewhat hopeful? How do you think it's going to change or might change things up here, if at all? Well, it's a very big question and there are many angles and there's different substances. You know, one thing is, for example, ketamine, that is, there's a branch of the use of ketamine that is just a very mainstream in a bad way, which doesn't involve any therapy, but there's other ketamine uh, practitioners that advocate for therapists. So that's a big difference. You have a lot of corporate interests pushing microdosing or microdosing for productivity in Silicon Valley. That is right. one kind of phenomenon. But you also <laughs> have uh, a very rich and strong mycelium mushroom culture and underground mm -hmm. and festivals and communities and clubs and journals and gatherings and uh, you have ayahuasca circles in a variation of numerous types of uh, rituals and, and celebrations and uh, traditions and leadership and you also have the whole MDMA and you know scene related to tech festivals or Burning Man or right. psychedelic assisted underground therapy so there isn't just one psychedelic movement there's different branches and as it becomes more corporate we don't even know how it's going to look like yet like psilocybin for depression by certain new corporations and new startups uh, MDMA for PTSD in the medical system, which might be a reality as soon as 2023. So it's it's hard to say one thing. In general, I I am a fan and I'm an enthusiast <laughs> about psychedelics, and I am also an activist and anti-prohibitionist, and we advocate for legalization, not only decriminalization, and not only psychedelics, but of all drugs. I think the impulses for altering your, your state of consciousness are widespread through history and time and cultures. And right. it, the drug war has not worked, has created incredible backlashes. In Chikruna, we advocate uh, for drug reform. And we are also just interested, as I said, in the cultural dimension and the reflection around the meaning and the culture, the traditions, the roots, the identity, the people, the territory, and all of that. I think it's a bit scary what's happening. And I was just participating on a panel yesterday about mainstreaming of psychedelics. I think everybody who has been from the psychedelic community for a few decades is a little bit in shock with what is happening in the field. There are so many new players and so much new uh, commercial interests 
and a lot of opportunism and a lot of people that are just there for the money and for the quick fix and a lot of ignorance, a lot of naivete, people that never had any personal experiences or have no relationship to this starting new businesses. So at the same time, it's also kind of scary. But in general, I continue to be an optimist. Uh, and I think that there's incredible potential for healing and transformation. And also considering the alternatives that we have currently and the, the global mental health challenges that we have, it's only an opportunity to win and to expand, to explore alternative models, because the models that we have currently are not working so well. So in this regard, the new psychedelic uh, assisted therapy and the new potential treatments are a great hope. I totally agree. I mean, I guess it won't be as easy or as fast to bring it up to the level of availability of something like Prozac, right? Because you want, people are going to want, there should be a clinical setting and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one-on-one -on -one time and, you know, the, the, the clinician is there with you. But as widespread as it can possibly be, I think, you know, however close we can get to replacing pharmaceuticals that aren't doing much for people, I feel like it could have a really transformative effect. I mean, the the number of people that are on SSRIs or some other, you know, antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication here who like live for years and with like mediocre results. I feel like psychedelics could not only give them better results in terms of depression and anxiety, but also have a consciousness revolution for some people that could be really beneficial. Yes, totally agree. And it's very exciting to be here. It's very exciting to be on the Bay Area, which is kind of the epicenter of a lot of this. Uh, it's, it's exciting to see. It's one of those things, you know, there's a bunch of people that are against and kind of boycotting and there's a lot of prejudice, stigma, taboo. And, and then it's a bit ironic because when people start realizing that there is potential healing and there are also potentially a lot of money you see a lot of this <laughs> the old opponents uh, switching sides and wanting to be the first ones to start that so it's it's one of those things you see you start to see all kinds of weird new people interested and also people that were just frankly opposed uh, kind of you know wanting to take the lead we we see a lot of that in in psychiatry you know, folks that publish a super critical piece on MDMA or psilocybin and say there is no evidence. And then after a while, with all the new publications coming in, you see these people trying to start studies or uh, conferences or even startup businesses themselves. And there's right. also a lot of people that are genuine and want to uh, dream of alternative forms of healing and want to serve and want to create projects that are inclusive and uh, culturally sensitive with cultural humility and that are collectively owned. And there's a lot of good initiatives happening as well. When you talk about the scary aspect of like the onrush of new people, I, the thing I think about is the late 60s 
the Pandora's box of psychedelics, Timothy Leary, and I think about the backlash and how we then end up in America, at least with eight years of Reagan, the Bush years, et cetera. Not maybe just only because of psychedelics, of course, but as things open up, how do you think about that? Like, is there a too fast? We can't control what's going on. It's like the globalization of ayahuasca. Like we don't have a big boss that is controlling everything. And this is right and this is wrong. We have to, to see what are our policies and programs that we can put in place to help steward this movement in a good position. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do in Chukruna. And for that effort, I welcome everybody that is listening to uh, visit our site, chukruna.net. And we're open for volunteers and want to hear the community, want people to join our movement. It's an incredible organization. The work that you're doing, I love it. And hope everyone will consider reading the articles and joining. I know we've run out of time, but can I ask you one last question, which is about the word of the episode? Yes. This can go wherever you want it to, Bia, but the word of the episode is rhythm. So whatever the word rhythm brings up for you, in terms of anything, anything at all that seems relevant to what we're talking about. It's not important that it be perfect. It's a thought starter. I think it uh, rhythm, for me, you can think about when you're in ceremony and you're, you're able to connect to this invisible dimension, to the world of the ancestors of the, you know, invisible beings and the spirits and these forces that we see when we can really see when we are consecrating uh, sacred plants. And, and I feel that there is this other pace, if you may, another rhythm or another time yeah. where this dialogue happens. And it's a kind of eternal and universal and cyclical time that is just perfect. And you can just follow that flow and that rhythm and that connection and that understanding as more as you take these plants as, as a student in this path, walking this journey, you learn to navigate this other reality. And this other reality has its own rhythm, its own pace. And it helps you recenter your, your notions of time, of self, of present, of past, of visible, of invisible. I, I love that because it, I think that in a way you're connecting to it feels like you're connecting to a rhythm that exists outside of yourself, as you said. And I think many of us can find ourselves out of rhythm. But in fact, it's not outside. It's also inside. It's just that sometimes we don't pay attention. Right. Bia Labachi, thank you so much for being on Clever Creature. And again, the site is, and the organization is Chakruna, C-H-A-C-R-U-N-A dot net. Thank you. I appreciate it. That beautiful theme song is by Emre Gotts, my son. Special thanks to Nicole Reed Kasky for the word of the episode, Rhythm. And again to Emre for the instrumentals of the song of the episode. I'll be back in two weeks with Cambridge mycologist Merlin Sheldrake, author of Entangled Life. You can learn more about me on my website, jasongotts.com, and I'd be grateful if you could take a moment to rate or review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen.